Welcome to Business Trip, a podcast exploring the future of mental health and wellness. I'm Greg Kubin, alongside my co-host, Matthias Serebrinski. We're partners at Simed Ventures, a venture fund investing in mental health. In today's episode, we take an inside look into the U.S. mental health care system and discuss which emerging therapies and technologies may be part of its future. We thought of no better guest on this topic than Tom Insel. Tom is the former director of the National Institute of Mental Health, the lead U.S. federal agency that conducts and supports research on mental illness. The NIMH annually supports 3,000 research grants and contracts with a budget of roughly $2 billion in 2023, including psychedelic research for the first time in 50 years. Tom led the NIMH from 2002 to 2015. Since then, he's been working in industry to build technology to improve mental health, first at Google's Life Sciences division Verily, then as a founder of MindStrong Health, a digital health company that raised $160 million and ultimately shut down in 2023. More recently, he started Vana Health, a provider of online healthcare services for individuals with serious mental illness. He also recently published a book called Healing, which is required reading for business trip listeners. Tom brings depth and experience to our conversation. We discuss his views on psychedelics in the healthcare system, ask for his analysis of antidepressants in America, why he's so excited about AI and mental health, and Tom shares his learnings from almost starting a venture capital fund. This is our final business trip episode of 2023. Let's get to it. Thomas Insel, welcome to the show. We read your book, it's just transformative. And I'll say that for me, it was also eye-opening. And as an investor, I like to think I'm able to zoom out and see the big picture and help entrepreneurs when they're more in the weeds. But actually, this book was a lot more of a zoom out than what I typically do and eye-opening in many perspectives. First of all, thanks for having me, Greg, Matthias. It's awesome to be able to sit down together and chat. As you'll remember from the book, I really ended with this idea that we need to provide the three P's, people, place, and purpose. And what I didn't understand when I wrote the book, and I've learned a lot about since, is that there's a fourth P that's really essential if the other threes are going to work, and that's payment. We do have to figure out how we pay for this. And so part of why I'm delighted to be here chatting with you guys is, you know, we don't like to talk about this as healthcare providers or as entrepreneurs often, but mental health care is fundamentally, in the United States, it's a business. It's a business to deliver services and to get payment for those services. And unless you've figured out how to get paid, you're not going to get adoption. You're not going to get actual use of the services. I don't think I thought enough about that when I was working on the book. And it's what I've been thinking a lot about ever since, because it is often the question that we're not asking early enough in the process. So delighted to be with you. I know that's where you guys live, is to think about the business side of all of this, as well as the science and the policy. But getting those three aligned, science, policy, and business, is really the challenge for all of us if we want to really have the impact uh, that we talk about in the mental health crisis. That's fantastic. I'm eager to learn what you've uncovered after writing the book, Healing. Let's start with 
a fairly specific question that also touches on this, which is around the intersection of psychedelics and the existing mental healthcare system. How do you envision psychedelics integrating with the system? I've thought quite a bit about it, and I care a lot about what broadly call the equity question, making sure that whatever treatments are available become available to as many people who need them. And in the case of mental health, we're often talking about people who have lost their jobs or who are struggling with their financial status. And so having access to insurance and having treatments that are covered by insurance is important. This takes us down really a different path for psychedelics. It means that the effort to get psychedelics accessible and decriminalized in states might make them available to people who can afford to pay out of pocket. But until they're covered by Medicaid or private insurance, there are going to be a number of people who just aren't going to be able to fork over the several thousand dollars that would be needed for both the prep and the actual sessions and the integration thereafter. Uh, I think that's a problem. If you're starting down a road that immediately is only going to be available for the people who have the means to pay for it, it's not ideal, right? It's not the world we really want, which is a world in which there is some kind of equity for a treatment that looks promising. And that means you have to go in a different route. You've got to go not only to change state policies, but you've got to figure out a way to get this through FDA as a medication that's got this stamp of efficacy and safety. And I think without that, it's really unlikely that you're going to get payment from either public or private insurance. I need to be really clear on this because there are times when you can get FDA approval and you still don't get payment from public or private insurance. And there are some times when you don't have FDA approval, when you can get public and or private insurance coverage. I think though for psychedelics, because of questions still around safety and efficacy, I, I just don't see this happening. I don't think you're going to see any of the big payers saying, oh yeah, we're going to jump into this. Now, this has happened in Australia, but I just don't think it's likely to happen in the United States. And Medicaid certainly is going to want to see the data and they're going to want to see an FDA response to that data before they would begin to think about this in their benefits package. Are you suggesting that the hesitancy would be because of the stigma and taboo of psychedelics and the risk factors of adverse events? Or are you saying because of the potential efficacy? One of the things that we're really excited about psychedelics is the fact that it can be so transformative. Most recently, MAPS coming out with their phase 3B trial data basically showing at least 71% uh, remission of PTSD symptoms um, versus I think 41% in the control, like really effective, far more effective than the existing standards of care. So I'm just curious to go deeper on what threads ultimately do you foresee insurance to be hesitant about? Well, we're talking about compounds that are schedule one compounds in terms of the DEA, which means by definition, there's no medical use for those compounds. They're not about to provide that as a benefit until uh, the scheduling changes, until there's some uh, determination that 
there's actual utility, effectiveness, and and safety. Uh, you know, Greg, in terms of the specifics of, of your question, I, I think both for psilocybin and MDMA, we're seeing really promising results. People are going to pick these results apart. They're going to complain about uh, the lack of blinding. And I think that just comes with this territory is a really difficult problem to solve. In the most recent study, the one that just came out last week in Nature Medicine, you're right. The effects of MDMA are really striking way beyond in terms of an effect size what one would see with um, the two SSRIs that are approved already for PTSD. So that's really promising, right? Problem there, and the way the FDA will look at this, is that the placebo group also had a pretty robust response, a response that would have been better than probably any previous studies looking at medication. And psychotherapy, which is a really important part of the MAPS approach, the FDA will see that as a bug, not a feature. The idea of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, which I think is brilliant, right? I think it, it actually solves a massive problem in the mental health care system, which is that we have good psychotherapies, good medications. Almost no one ever gets those two together. We don't optimize care by combining medication and psychotherapy. It's really interesting that both the psilocybin and the MDMA projects that are the furthest along have done exactly that. And I think that's really promising and, and maybe in some ways the most impactful thing that could come out of all of this if that changes the nature of care. But from a regulatory uh, framework, that's not attractive to them. They're not going to see this as a plus. They're going to see it as a minus. And I worry about that. In this context, do you see some similarities between digital therapeutics and psychedelics in the sense of it's not this molecule that is delivered? So are there any interesting comparison points or any learnings that we can take away from that? Well, I hope not because, you know, the FDA weighed into that. When was that? In 2020. And they did this large thing, which they themselves said was a pilot project, which was software as a therapeutic device, I'm not saying that quite right, but they really wanted to try to figure out how can we manage digital therapeutics? Can't we figure out a way to be able to provide some guidance? And I think they were really trying to do the right thing. And they brought a really good team together to do that. And I love the way they did it, which was to bring in the companies and really sit down with all of us and walk us through what they were trying to do and get help in figuring out how to do it. But it was three years later, when they finally looked at what they had taken on, I'm not sure that they wanted to continue the process. And if you read the report that came out, I think they were beginning to feel like this is just not in our DNA. We do food, we do drugs, but figuring out a way to review software, which is changing every two weeks, that's just really hard for us. And we can look at a process, we can, we can review a company or we can review an approach but at the end of the day, that's actually not so helpful. It's not really where they wanted to be. And I think where the public needs some help. So no question, we need a regulatory process for digital therapeutics and digital mental health. We don't have it. It's not going to be the FDA. I don't know who it will be. What was so fascinating in looking at the history of the FDA is what was set up as a consumer protection agency, basically in 1908, 
effectively really in the 1920s. So it's one of the oldest ones we have. Where it had its greatest value actually was for the pharmaceutical industry because it helped the pharmaceutical industry to figure out, all right, what do we need to do to get approved? Um, In the same way we were just talking about for psychedelics, what's the process? What are the things that matter for both efficacy and safety? Once you have those standards, it makes it a lot easier for companies to know how to make new products. We don't have that in the digital mental health world and we need it. And I'm just really hopeful that over the next two to three years, this is going to get put together. Well, it feels less mature in psychedelics or in in any other combinations of behavioral kind of therapies with uh, a molecule. But what I'm taking away as a potential outcome or something that may be coming in the future that's not even mapped today as far as I know is this idea of a different regulatory body or a partnership between FDA and some other uh, organization that is more on top of these uh, combinations of psychotherapy and a drug itself. So that is kind of a novel thought that I hadn't considered before. To be really clear about this, there isn't really an FDA for psychotherapy. There's no federal agency that oversees psychotherapy or even a federal agency that oversees credentialing. All that's left to the states and all the states differ. So I think there is a policy question here, which is especially if you're in a national mental health crisis and if there's a real problem with not having sufficient workforce, is there a way to fix the credentialing so that whether people are accessing therapy online or face-to-face, that you can increase the range of people that are available by having some national standards and some national credentialing. But we're not there yet. What you're talking about around the FDA and being less aligned with psychotherapy and their approval process, it could also have a second-order effect of more drug developers that are creating psychedelic therapeutics without the psychotherapy, right? You'll see that with some companies with uh, ketamine or novel ketamine formulations or even companies that are developing non-hallucinogenic analogs of psychedelics. So one could argue that those companies, you may see more activity amongst those companies because of those dynamics with the FDA. Yeah, absolutely. And and I do think A lot of that's going to play out in the next 12 to 24 months. MAPS hopes to be able to submit its application. I guess they've been saying later in 2023. It's getting a little late (laughs) in 2023, but I think they're still hopeful and they're still working on it. It'll be really interesting to see. They have a breakthrough designation, as does Compass. So those are are really promising signs, but it's going to be interesting. I think we'll learn a lot by how the FDA responds to this first application Compass is much further away. They've just started their phase three trials. So it's it's going to be a, a while, probably a couple of years at least. But I think this question is going to be one of the main ones they're going to be asking about is how much, how well can we judge efficacy when psychotherapy seems to be key to the process? And as I say, they're not going to see that as a plus. They're going to see that potentially, I think, as a minus. I see it as a huge plus. And I think it, for me, it underlines this idea that there's not going to be a magic bullet for depression or anorexia or PTSD. 
for we've been talking about that for five decades that there's going to be a pill to do for these disorders what penicillin did for a staph infection or what any of our antibiotics can do when they're targeted in the right way. I think we have to come to terms with the idea that these the mental health problems, mental illnesses, are not the same as infectious diseases. That's not just a, a simple bug that can be treated with a simple drug. It's just, we're talking about something a lot more complicated and it's going to need medication often. It's going to need psychological treatment often. It's going to need rehabilitative interventions often. I mean, there's, we have lots of good stuff to, to offer, but the idea that there's some singular magical fix, we got to get over that because that's just not the way it's going to play out. And all this tracks back to my frustration with the fact that we don't have a regulatory framework that recognizes that. We have an FDA that was really set up for infectious disease. It works great when you're looking for a, a drug that kills a bug. Uh, it doesn't work great when you're looking for the treatments that help someone with a complex, serious mental illness to be able to get back to work and take care of their family and fully recover. We don't have that. So changing gears, one of the, I would say a common sentiment in the psychedelic circles is this idea that psychedelics can target the root cause as opposed to addressing the symptoms. And when we think about what I would say the most popular antidepressant uh, treatment has been in the last 20 years, it's been SSRIs, SNRIs, and these serotonin reuptake inhibitors that, that can basically help people get to their baseline. And, but with that comes, in many instances, a lot of side effects ranging from fatigue to lack of libido. And I'm curious, are antidepressants overprescribed? It's a hard question. I, the way I usually answer it is that there are people getting antidepressants who probably shouldn't get them. And there are probably even more people who would benefit who never get them because they're both overprescribed and underprescribed, right? And, you know, we have to remember that something like 80% of prescriptions for SSRIs in the United States are written by primary care docs who see a lot of people with depression. In some estimates, 30% of a primary care practice will be either depression or anxiety. They don't have the resources or the training to be able to provide psychological therapies, which may be as effective, in some cases, even more effective for mild to moderate anxiety and depression. In the UK, they've actually made nice guidelines say that actually the first line of treatment for mild to moderate depression and anxiety is psycho psychological. It's not medical. And because they had the same issue there, what they thought was an overuse of SSRIs, they brought in a sort of a population-based approach, something called IAPT or increasing access to psychological therapies, IAPT. And with about now 570,000 people in the UK every year receiving CBT, either online or face-to-face, for depression, who previously would have received an SSRI. So they've cut way back on their SSRIs. They've made a massive increase 
not only in the access to psychological treatments, but in ensuring that it's a very high quality and that people are measuring outcomes and doing all these things that in the United States we're still not doing. I just think that we ought to learn from that experience because they now have population impact and recognize that, again, it's not that an SSRI prescription is probably not an adequate treatment for most people with depression. It's probably, in some cases, it may be necessary, but it's largely insufficient. Will psychedelics be a better approach? Are they really treating the root cause? I don't know what the root cause of depression is. <laughs> I don't even know how SSRIs work. I, I don't, maybe someone does. I don't understand it. Yeah, they block serotonin reuptake, but that's really a first step of a thousand, right? It doesn't tell you how they're, what's really going on. And we don't really know where they work or what they do and why they work when they do and why they don't work when they don't. So I would guess I come out of this thinking that it'll be great to have more tools in the toolbox and to have additional medications that have different mechanisms of action. That's always really helpful. The advent of brexanolone for initially for, for postpartum depression is a great example of a completely different mechanism of action that seems to be very effective. The idea that we can have rapid-acting antidepressants that work in hours instead of weeks, that's really very promising. And ketamine, I think, is um, the first compelling example of that. Uh, Psychedelics, we're still going to have to learn and see um, when they work, uh, when they don't, uh, what the full safety profile is. Um, I think there's still a lot to learn. But the initial data that has been published, it's really promising. I just hasten to point out that in the world of psychopharmacology, the kind of dirty secret for those of us who live in that world is when new drugs come out, use them while they still work. There's always this excitement and the first data are always the best. And then you have a voltage drop as you go to subsequent studies and as you go from clinical trials into the real world of care. So that's probably going to be no different for psychedelics than any other of the 30 antidepressants and 20 antipsychotics that we have. Tom, I want to go back to one of the first things you mentioned, which is the fourth P, so people, place, purpose, and payment. And everything you learned after the publication of Healing. One of the things we were talking offline before we started recording is that you actually planned to start a venture fund focused on mental health. I would love to get a little bit more context around that and what you learned by doing that. Yeah. Yeah, I got together with a colleague, David Moe, who's now the CEO at Cerebral. But at that point, this is long before Cerebral. This was when he was working at a company called Valera as their CMO and And he had plenty of time on his hands and I had some time on my hands. And we started talking about all the ideas we had for companies in digital mental health that didn't exist. And um, our frustration that um, so much investment was going to the same idea being done over and over again by people who actually weren't really innovating in the way we wanted to see. So we said, all right, let's, let's set up our own fund. And let's focus just on mental health. This was about 2020, I think. So it was during the pandemic. And we brought a group of really top advisors together. And we started interviewing companies and listening to pitches. 
and outlining where we thought opportunities were. A couple of things came out of that. Well, one was that David ended up getting recruited to Cerebral, so he didn't have time for this anymore. So I realized how hard it was to get limited partners in the door. We were spending a lot of time trying to raise our anchor funding for the fund, and we finally got an anchor investor, but the terms were not terms we wanted to accept. So we struggled with that. And then I have to say on a personal level, I realized, what the hell am I doing here? I didn't know anything about business. I didn't know anything about investment. And the idea that I was going to spend all my time trying to make money for people who already had a lot of money, it's just not what I want to do every day. So David went off to Cerebral and I went off to found another company and go back to just being a, a co-founder and a company builder. But in that process, I learned a lot that really s- struck me was that there really are a lot of opportunities. There were some great companies coming online. I think we probably saw somewhere between 70 and 100 companies in six months. We picked five as the ones we really liked, and they've all done, I think almost all of them have done really well. As novices, we were able to pick out some winners pretty quickly. I just think there's a lot of opportunity here. And the reason I say that is, as an entrepreneur, I I tend to look for where are we spending a lot of money and getting really bad results, getting bad returns. And mental health care is such an area, especially in my own interest, is in kind of the deep end of the pool. People who have serious mental illness who are often the most expensive patients in either a public or private insurance plan. They are, if you just look at the top, I don't know, 10% of the most expensive patients who are $20,000 a year and up are $25,000 to $30,000 a year and up. 40% of them have serious mental illness. That's pretty amazing. I don't think 40% of them have anything else in common, but that's a big deal. And, And yet the results are terrible for most of them. They're just not getting well. They're not getting effective treatments and they're not getting any of the treatments they need to recover. That feels to me like a very rich opportunity to say, we can do a lot better. We could actually spend less money and get much better results. And as an entrepreneur, that's the perfect storm you look for. It's not, how do I get people to spend more? It's how can I convince people to spend less and yet see something that really happens in terms of population impact. And I have no doubts that's the case for serious mental illness. I also think that for people who are not in the deep end of the pool, which is a much larger population, although probably smaller actual spend in many markets, there's a huge amount we can do. I mean, we can, the digital health revolution, as I've written, is I think we're at the very beginning of that. We're in Act One. The advent of AI is going to make a profound difference. I'm going to argue that it's probably going to make a bigger difference for mental health than any other part of medicine. Why do you think that AI will especially make an impact on mental health versus other areas within healthcare? Yeah, part of it is that mental health doesn't have a lot of procedures. We don't do surgery. We don't need biopsies. We don't have interventional procedures, which are going to be really hard to use AI for. You could have robotic surgery, but that only takes you so far. So we're in a field in which almost everything we do involves communication. It's listening, it's observing, and sometimes it's talking. 
but sometimes it's using medication as well. But if you just think about the bread and butter of this discipline of mental health, it's the stuff that you can do really well with what AI does. So just as an example, I'm an advisor to a company called Ellipsis, and Ellipsis does vocal biomarkers. It captures voice and speech in a way that's allowed them to basically replace assessments like PHQ-9s and GAD-7s and that kind of thing. That many thousands of patients in which they've been able to validate this kind of a marker. I can see a day not that far in the future where telehealth, but even for brick and mortar, that we are capturing voice and speech as a data stream that allows us to get very objective measures of sentiment, of coherence, of stress and anxiety. This is not hard. It's already, we know how to do this already. It's a question of getting that kind of an adoption. Baking in a digital scribe to every interview, like what we're doing right now, so you've got an immediate summary of what's taken place and you can then generate reports with AI. That is really so much of what mental health care is all about, is the interview process, the in, the interaction, the communication. This is where AI really shines. And NLP, natural language processing, can really provide value. I would add to that, we need to begin bringing in other kinds of data, like wearable data. Sleep is so important for mental health, and yet we don't measure it generally. So being able to capture sleep objectively, not just subjectively, you start to put these things together and you begin to say, gosh, telehealth 2.0 could become a very rich environment in which we'll have remarkable amounts of data that allow us to personalize care, allow us to track care, allow us to measure outcomes in a way that's passive and objective. And then with LLMs with generative AI to create reports for patients, for families, for payers, for providers, all of that very quickly. So I'm super excited about where all this can go. I think we've just begun. Wow, I love that. I took away the generative AI, telehealth 2.0, bringing more data from wearables and other sensors there's a lot more data that we could actually crunch and closed loop psychotherapy. Going back to you, the areas that you were excited about when you were thinking through this potential mental health fund, are there any other opportunities that you want to bring attention to as, as things that were part of your original thesis from the fund in 2020? Yeah, a lot of the original thesis was about getting better data. We got intrigued by a company that you guys probably know called Osmind. Uh, which was collecting data from ketamine clinics. And I just thought they had a brilliant idea, which was they weren't going to provide the care, but they were going to provide the insights to improve the care for ketamine clinics. And so they didn't have to build clinics. They didn't have to build the treatment. They simply had to learn what was working and what wasn't. I was excited about some of the sort of more bespoke efforts that were looking not at capturing the huge market of depression, but much smaller markets where there was an unmet need, like in eating disorders or OCD or areas where 
We had treatments, but high-quality treatment wasn't available to most people. And I, at that time, was really interested in the, and I still am, in the precision medicine approach for, for psychiatry. So a company like Alto Neuroscience, which I was super excited about then and even more excited about now, but a company that was going into collecting the kind of data like EEG data or cognitive testing, and initially trying to subtype depression and subtype PTSD, ultimately saying, look, we have very clear subtypes, but does it mean anything in terms of treatment? And then in licensing a bunch of compounds, can we map these compounds onto these uh, subtypes? And can we get to a point where we are with cancer today, where we say the kind of mood disorder you have will respond particularly well to this kind of an intervention, which is maybe not an SSRI. We're going to have to see whether that approach can reinvigorate drug development for psychiatry. But I I actually think it might. And early days, we need another couple of years to see how that'll play out. That's fantastic. I like that you mentioned Alto and Osmind. We had Lucia, the founder of Osmind, on the podcast a while back. For any listener that's interested in checking out that episode, it's a really good one. You talked about a few companies that you co-founded, companies that you advised, like Alto Neuroscience. I'm interested in your process of thinking through which companies you want to become an advisor, which companies you want to become a co-founder, because ultimately in those companies, you're investing your most valuable asset, a lot more valuable than money, which is your time. So do you have a framework by which you think through those opportunities? For me, the interest is in, is this going to have an impact for at a population health level? Can we actually see something that will develop and be adopted in healthcare and will scale in a way that makes sense? So there has to be a business model that makes sense. And there has to be the rigor of the finding itself. My whole career was as a scientist, a bench scientist. I was doing really fundamental science. So I care about evidence and data a lot more than I do about marketing and a lot of the other stuff that often drives people to think that shiny objects will become will become gold. There are some companies that I've gotten involved with that I think are really exciting and really do have great promise, but haven't always been able to find traction in the marketplace. But I think they will ultimately. It's a tough a combination of events that take you from having a great product to having that product market fit. And often that's not a linear journey. A company I co-founded, what, two, three years ago called Humanest Care is like a super interesting idea of, of empowering people online to help each other. So in some ways it's a cross between social media and clinical care, but it's a company that is mostly reach traction with university students. So it goes into a university, gets a contract to provide mental health care. And it does that through what's generically called peer support. But what they do is something quite a bit different. They actually bring people in and give them the skills to be helpful to each other through kind of an asynchronous texting and creating groups of people that have shared issues. Uh, They have a credentialed clinician who moderates uh, all the group chat and so it doesn't go off the rails and for whatever reason at least for younger people 
meaning university age, this is often preferred to having one-to-one therapy. They really do seem to want this. And when humanists look into why is this so engaging, why is there such great uptake, and then why do kids continue to stay on the platform, it wasn't so much that they felt they were getting help, but that they were able to give help. And we don't really think about that in healthcare very often. We all benefit in healthcare when we are providers and we feel how gratifying it is to help somebody else. But we don't think about giving our patients that same opportunity. And Humanest has done that in a way that, as they like to say, it, it scales compassion. They've recently gotten into sort of the global mental health world and are supporting young women in Pakistan to help each other in a really fascinating way. We can create community and create community online in a way that is really helpful. My most recent company is Vana Health, which I co-founded a little more than a year ago. And that really does go after that fourth P. It's really just the opposite in some ways of Humanesque. Humanesque is all online. Vana Health is high touch, not high tech. We're um, trying to help the most expensive Medicaid patients and to demonstrate that we can reduce costs and get better outcomes by providing coaching, clubhouses in communities, building community really for them with people, place, and purpose. So we started off, we've launched in Philadelphia as our first effort, hiring coaches and community health workers and uh, people who can provide both behavioral health as well as medical care and even dental care and podiatry, all of that, because this population needs a lot. Amazingly, because we're spending so much on these folks already, $35,000, dollars $50,000 a year for many of these patients, that kind of money redeployed to these community services goes a long way. And we actually think we can get far better outcomes um, and still save quite a bit of money. And so we share the savings with payers. Vana Health is still early days. This is our first market. There are probably three or four other companies that are trying to do the same thing in other markets. And I'm pretty excited that here the innovation is actually in the payment model, not so much in the software or the hardware that we use. But I think we can get a lot of a lot of mileage out of just the things that we know already and beginning to building community offline, not online, and doing it with a group of people who tend to be very marginalized, disenfranchised, and and yet for the healthcare system, incredibly expensive. I'm going to ask you a couple other categories of company that you, if you have a perspective on, because as investors, we're also seeing new types of companies. One is companies that are creating peer support platforms instead of platforms with licensed therapists. So Humanest is an example. They're a peer support practice. They came out of a company called Seven Cups, which was doing just pure peer support and open to all. And and I think really struggled because of the lack of certified credentialed therapists. They went off the rails in all kinds of ways. What you find in those companies is often there's uh, a lot of, they're trolls, they're bad actors, sad to say. So I think it really is important to have someone in the mix. I think Humanesta, it's like one therapist per thousand users. So it's not like it scales pretty well. 
But I wouldn't get into the pure peer support without having some clinical expertise in the room. I think there's huge opportunity there. It may be harder to market, to monetize, never quite clear whether you want to do this as direct to consumer or through enterprise. There are a whole bunch of things there uh, to consider, but the concept is definitely where we're going. Mm-hmm. One subtopic of that one, you mentioned consumer enterprise going directly to private insurance, going through Medicare, Medicaid, or employer benefits. Do you have a perspective there of where are the most interesting channels right now? Well, we all started with D2C and many of the companies that are now in the enterprise market, Ginger, Lira, some of the most successful ones really began as D2C enterprises, but they couldn't make it work. What I think they found was CAC just began to cannibalize the company. And in those companies that like BetterHelp and Cerebral and a few others that are pretty successful in the D2C market. It's ugly when you look at their budgets for CAC. It's painful. Customer acquisition costs, by the way. Yeah. Cerebral has cut way back and has found a way, I think, to manage that. But it's hard to compete unless you have deep pockets in the direct-to-consumer marketing. If you go enterprise, you can split that between going to employers and you can, or you can go to payers or providers. So healthcare or employers, wonderful in the sense that they're a great distribution model, uh, sometimes easy to work with, but it's a pretty saturated market. Uh, There's a lot of competition there. You've already got some major league companies that are in that market that have wrapped up hundreds of employers, each one of them. That's a hard place to start unless you want to try to undercut them in some way. Going to healthcare is just frigging difficult. And yet it's where I think we have to be. And it's just not the marketplace that you want. Very slow sales cycles can take a year to get a pilot going. This is a really tough marketplace for innovation. The the need to do a pilot with every payer or every provider you start working with eats up six to nine months. Um, And then the team may be gone by the time you finish that. Okay, so one more startup category is neurotech devices for mental health. So that could be neurofeedback, that could be direct current stimulation, magnetic stimulation, focused ultrasound, more invasive solutions. What gets you really excited in the application of mental health? So I got a, you know, my science hat says under a science hat, I'd say a lot of that stuff is super cool. And the DBS stuff, and especially the stuff that's... DBS is direct brain stimulation. Yeah, brain stimulation. So the so and even now some of the work that's being done outside the cranium, like with transcranial magnetic stimulation, where you're developing closed loops. So you're recording and then stimulating according to what the recordings look like. Yeah, I think that's just very cool. We've gotten a long way doing that for epilepsy. It's very promising. I think doing that for anxiety disorders, mood disorders, there's a lot there that I find really promising. I'll just tell you, I don't see how that gets paid for in the marketplace that we have today. And unless you can demonstrate that you're able to do something that you can't do with generic medications, it's going to be really tough. And I would say this is true for any therapeutic innovations in mental health. We're victims of our success. We've got 30 antidepressants and 20 antipsychotics that are really cheap. Like they are pennies to pay for. 
And they're not great, but they're good. And for payers, you're going to have to get over that hump that they've got something that costs almost nothing that's approved and works okay. You're going to have to be a lot better than that unless you find an indication for which there is no treatment. And we have a few. that, And then you have something to offer. Then I think people are willing to spend more. But it's going to be a sell to get people to pay for an expensive new intervention unless you've been able to show that this is a patient who hasn't responded to four or five currently acceptable and very inexpensive treatments. It's coming back to that fourth P, payment. Yeah, and that's why I stress this piece about payment because no payment, no adoption. That's just the difficult reality, or I'll call it the inconvenient truth of healthcare in America. It's a business And I don't think that's the case in the UK or in Canada or many parts of Europe. But here it just comes down to, is it worth it for payers to put the money out there? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Tom, we have a lot of questions. So we kickstart a rapid fire section where the idea is that we ask questions and you do your best to address them in tweet length uh, answer. Okay. So the first question there is, what do most people get wrong when thinking about mental illness from a business model or business execution perspective? Yeah, most people don't understand the marketplace. And that's um, understandable because it's complicated. But when you look at the companies that fail, and I've had a few, often it's because we have not really fully understood the market and the business of mental health care. What is your perspective on what some call in the West alternative healing modalities? So acupuncture, Reiki, bioenergetics. Do you think that there is a place for these in the healthcare system? I think the healthcare system still is looking for evidence. And so they're going to know, want to know what's available from randomized clinical trials and how good is the, uh, the quality of the trial and how big is the effect size. And finally, it's a treatment for whom? Like, what is the indication here that you're trying to treat? Remember, healthcare, basically, unless there's a CPT code, unless there's a way to to provide a particular number on a reimbursement form, you can't get paid for it with insurance. So you're going to have to know what the indication is. And it has to be an indication for which there's a CPT code. Tom, you are a psychiatrist and a neuroscientist. And it feels like so much of your work has been around mental illness. I'm curious around, or I'm curious about how you think of human augmentation or human flourishing. Michael Pollan sometimes calls it the betterment of the people that are doing well. This really becomes an issue when we talk about psychedelics, because in the case of psychedelics, you can ask, I think, in a really serious way, why should one have to have a diagnosis to take psilocybin and improve one's experience of the world? or to flourish more, why do you need to have a CPT code that goes with this? Why shouldn't we be able to have experiences 
with medications or without that help us grow and become better people. And um, for me, psychedelics really bring this question to the fore because we have a group of chemical agents that um, can alter the way people see themselves and see the world around them and can have long-term and profound impacts on helping people to become better human beings. Should we limit the use of those chemicals to people who have a DSM diagnosis or who can receive these in the framework of healthcare? And I think a lot of people come to the conclusion that no, that's that's limiting what these drugs can do because they really can help with flourishing. They can help with the betterment of humankind. The hitch for me is that if we go down that route, do we preclude the use of these compounds for, as medications for people who do have a diagnosis? And I'll be honest about where I sit with this, because as a psychiatrist and as someone who's really focused on the national mental health crisis, I want to have access to agents like this that can really make a difference, because I think the data are beginning to say that they would. Thanks for, for the answer. I'll add that I, I would think that argument doesn't only apply to psychedelics. It could even apply to psychotherapy, right, where there's a shortage of psychotherapists. And many times the people that need that care the most are the ones that are not being able to access it. So just even extrapolating this to other areas outside psychedelics. Good point. Good point. How do you manage your mental health? I have to say age helps a lot. I think when I was younger, I struggled a lot with what we tend to call um, now resume virtues, trying to uh, progress in my profession, trying to write as many papers in as the best journals possible and dealing with the rejections by nature and science was never easy. And dealing, you know, also with just building a lab and building a career. When you get to be at my stage of life, which is in the 70s, which is actually a great phase of life, you think much more about sort of the eulogy virtues, the things that people will say about you when you're not around anymore. And so my mental health is really supported a lot by having grandchildren nearby, by mentoring people who are in the generations coming up and making sure the next generation has an opportunity. I read widely. I still learn a lot. Exercise is important. And the three Ps, really, you know, having uh, social support. I've been happily married for uh, longer than most people I know have been alive. So well into our 50 years together plus, that's a huge source of my own mental health. So that's the people, place, and purpose. That's the the people part, I live on a farm, which is a beautiful place to spend time and to be able to work the ground. So that's the place. And the purpose is to still stay engaged in conversations like this and in and work with others, with startups to help, help them develop. I just think this is a great time to be in the digital mental health space. It'll be, we'll look back at this in 30 years as I won't, but those of people who are still around in 30 years will look back at it and say, Wow, that was a moment. That was really a special time to see huge changes in the way that we delivered mental health care. So it's fun to be part of that. Speaking of huge changes, you mentioned a few things that 
you're excited about in the future around technologies and modalities like precision psychiatry or uh, AI. Are there other things or is there one more thing that's even further in the future? You could say that it's not 100% grounded in science yet because the evidence is not there, but are, are there things like that that you have some positive feelings about or well let's let's put it differently you have curiosity about in the future yeah i guess i would say that a really huge area is going to be the first thousand days uh, of life and how that uh, affects uh, uh, brain development and there i think the microbiome is a big piece of that um, the way that the immune factors, the microglia in the brain are getting set up. I think there's, we don't know a lot about this. It's hard to do these kinds of studies, but I think either what's happening prenatal or what's happening in the, the months, early months postnatal, super interesting to think about what that is doing long-term. I know people are now be just, I've just heard a presentation on looking at sleep postnatally and that kind of stuff I think is just fascinating The other piece, which was maybe not so scientific, but which I think is really important to think about now is, can we get to a point where social media becomes not the problem that we think about it now as, but the solution? I did a LinkedIn post yesterday on a really cool idea that somebody sent me, which was um, developing a Minecraft experience for kids who undergoing loss and grief. Um, And this is exactly where I would love to see innovation move, which is meeting people where they are. And if you're 14 or 15, that means Roblox, Minecraft, maybe if you're 11, 12, 13, 14, Roblox and Minecraft and Discord, Fortnite. Having those really important platforms begin to become the solution for the youth mental health crisis because they create the sort of stuff we've done at Humanest. They create the kinds of They provide the kinds of tools and the kinds of social connection that helps people to support each other in, in new ways. I just think everybody's wringing their hands about the evils of social media and how awful it is that kids are on Fortnite 40, 50 hours a week. I get that. And yeah, it is awful. And it's there's an opportunity uh, cost to that, which is, is just tragic. On the other hand, uh, let's get real. Let's meet kids where they are. Let's follow them instead of expecting them to drop that and do something else. And I think that if we can create those platforms as the sort of point of the spear for dealing with youth mental health issues, wow, could be really extraordinary. Okay, last question, Tom. Will the diagnosis of mental illness be lower or higher in 10 years? <laughs> Oh, gosh. I'll answer part of it that the diagnosis of serious mental illnesses like schizophrenia and bipolar illness, from what I can tell, at least for schizophrenia, hasn't changed in 100 years. And I don't think it's going to change very much in the next 10, 20, 30 years. I think we're, it's been 1% of the population I just don't think that's likely to change. What will change is how we deal with it. And today we incarcerate people with that disorder. We let them become homeless and eat out of dumpsters. We have carved them out from healthcare and cast them out from our social 
networks. And I think the next 10 years, we're going to do far better. I think they, as President Kennedy said in 1963, these folks should no longer be alien from our affections. They need to be part of our communities. That's what he said when he signed the Community Mental Health Act, October of 1963. Here we are 60 years later, almost to the day. And I think we're now at a point where we're ready to recommit and to make sure through a new federally funded community mental health system that's just launching that this population of, I don't know, uh, but 14 million Americans will have, will have whole person care and will not necessarily have to be incarcerated to get care. I always appreciate a, a dose of optimism. So Tom, thank you so much for joining the pod today. And this was a wonderful rounded conversation and very much appreciate your time. Thanks guys. It was fun. Thank you, Tom. For all our listeners, Dr. Tom Insull's book, Healing Our Path from Mental Illness to Mental Health, is absolutely amazing and I would argue required reading for anyone that's working or is interested in the field. So, highly recommend it. This is Business Trip, a podcast exploring the future of mental health and wellness. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Simed Ventures. And if you're building a company in frontier mental health, hit us up at hi at simed.ventures, which you can find in the show notes. I'm Greg Kubin, and my co-host is Matthias Serebrinski. Our editor is Jonathan Davis, with production led by Caitlin Nair. Sound design and engineering came from Nico Ray. Our theme music is by Dorian Love, and additional music credits are in the show notes. This is Business Trip. Thanks for tripping with us. We'll see you next time. Next time.